As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, my spookies. It's time for five terrifying stories all about ghosts and the paranormal. Get yourself ready and get comfortable. We have over two hours of the best of Weekly Spooky coming right up. But before we get to that, I want to say a huge thank you to everybody who's contributed to the GoFundMe to help pay for my dog Chicano's chemotherapy. We've raised over $3,700, and I cannot thank you enough, and he's doing very well. So thank you all so much for all of the help and the kind words. It really does mean the world to me. Now it's time for a story about children, about life, and about death. It's Suffer the Little Children, right here, right now, after these quick words from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Suffer, Suffer the little children, children. by Dennis Freeman. You're not goddamn going, Anthony said, trying his father's favorite epithet on for size. He was only 12, but thanks to Jacob Anderson, he had quite a colorful vocabulary for his age. He surveyed his little brother's face and saw no sign of shock at the use of the GD word, but only a solemn, pouting lower lip. Greg was 11, and even though both went to middle school, there was an unspoken but well-defined hierarchy. Anthony hung out with kids from his class who were mostly 12 and 13, and despite being only a year and 19 days older than Greg, he knew his little brother would be categorized as a baby big kid by his friend James. Come on, Tony, Greg whined. All my friends are gone for Thanksgiving break. Let me hang out with you guys. Can't do it, Sprat. I'll tell mom you and your friends were playing at the quarry, Greg exclaimed. Tony was momentarily worried by this threat, but let it slide. He knew Greg would be upset he couldn't go, but he'd never endanger his own well-being by telling their mother something that would surely land Anthony in his room with no Xbox One and the cable disconnected for no less than two weeks. Do that, and you'll never get to hang out with us, Anthony said. What am I supposed to do, Tony? Stop whining, for starters. He said it much more harshly than he intended. Greg cast his eyes down at his feet, and Anthony sighed. He put his arm around Greg, after checking around the street to make sure nobody was watching, and tried to comfort his brother. If you get hurt playing at the quarry with us, Mom would shit a bird. Greg giggled at this like Anthony knew he would. The mental image of their mother shitting feathers tickled Greg, and the first time Anthony had said it, his little brother had nearly died laughing. I guess I'll just play Xbox... You better be home by five, though. Mom and Dad will be asking where you are, and I hate pretending like I don't know, Greg said. Promise, Anthony raised a three-finger scout salute. Look, I'll talk to James and the guys and see if I can't get them to let you come with us next time, okay? Greg smiled and nodded. Anthony would probably mention it to the guys, but he knew he wouldn't put up much of a fight if they said no. Anthony wasn't a mean brother by any means, but he was a follower by nature. Greg knew this even if he didn't know exactly how to articulate it. He watched as Anthony mounted his big red mongoose and took off down the street to meet the rest of the James Gang, as they called themselves. Once his brother was out of sight, Greg sighed and went inside to get a soda and retired to his room to play Xbox. Greg sat on the floor by his bed, surrounded by a plethora of empty soda cans and candy wrappers. Had his mother walked in at that exact moment, she would have shit a bird at the sight. He turned off his console and began to stuff the wrappers into his already overflowing wastebasket. 
He took the cans downstairs and put them in the recycling and plopped down onto one of the bar stools in the kitchen. It was only 11.30, and Greg had already exhausted his patience at the new Madden game. It's going to be exactly the same as the last three, Anthony had said one day when Greg had excitedly described the commercial to him. As usual, his brother had been correct in his assumption. Great graphics aside, the Xbox wasn't keeping Greg's attention, and he started to think about what Anthony and his friends could be doing down at the quarry. Anthony was only a year older than he was, and Greg couldn't imagine that he and his friends were doing anything that he himself couldn't do. Fuck it, Greg muttered under his breath. His cheeks flushed hot at the vocalization of what his mother called the really bad word, and he went into the garage to grab his bike. He would ride down to the quarry and see just what his brother's friends were up to. He would go what his father called incognito and watch from afar at first. He grabbed the backpack his parents had bought him for hiking trips and put on his khakis, which clashed with the black athletic shorts and the orange basketball jersey, but he wasn't out to win any fashion contests. He pulled his curly locks back out of his face and put them into a ponytail. He had had long hair since he was a baby, and with the exception of a handful of trims, he'd always worn his hair long. The older he got, the less serious the teasing about his hair got, and now he even received a few compliments mostly from girls. Greg mounted his blue huffy and started off down the street. He rode down Alberta Street and took a detour between a pair of houses on Jackson. The trip itself only took about ten minutes, but it felt like forever to Greg, whose mind wouldn't stop speculating as to what he'd see when he got there. He wondered if James' gang would be doing dangerous stunts on their bikes, or perhaps they were wrestling by the scummy pond that was in the pit left over from the rainy weather they'd had. They may be hanging out with girls, he thought. This brought a fresh flush to his cheeks. He was 11 and his girls are icky stage had been over for almost a year, but he still wasn't sure about the fairer sex. He had a basic grasp on what boys and girls did together when they were older, but the thought of it still caused a weird mix of emotions he wasn't able to understand. He felt his pants begin to tighten in the crotch and forced himself to think of something else. The last thing he needed was to run into his brother and his friends with a raging heart on. He wouldn't live that down, not in this lifetime. The next one either, for that matter. Greg dropped his foot down and drug it through the gravel as he decelerated. He approached the edge of the quarry warily. He saw Anthony's bike parked by some bushes among four others and left his own a few feet away. He adjusted his backpack and crouch-walked down the narrow path beaten down by adolescent foot traffic and made his way to the edge of the pit. He looked down and saw the five boys who made up the James gang laid out on the rocks by the water that was pooled down there. He didn't see any girls, but he did see that two of them were smoking cigarettes. He did a double-take when he realized that his brother was one of the ones smoking. A cigarette hung lackadaisically from the corner of his mouth, and his eyes squinted against the smoke as he skipped rocks across the surface of the water. Mom would shit a bird, he grinned maniacally at this. Two of the kids looked like they were playing a board game, checkers it looked like, and James and another boy that Greg didn't recognize were talking next to Anthony. Not talking, Greg thought. Arguing. A little shoving match broke out between James and the other boy, and Anthony moved in between them to break it up. He took the cigarette out of his mouth and moved it nimbly between his fingers as he did this. Greg noted that it probably wasn't the first time his brother had smoked. 
Greg couldn't tell what the boys were arguing about, so he decided he was going to try and sneak to a pile of broken stones about ten feet away from the boys. He once again began to crouch walk, but avoided the path. You're a fucking liar, Charles exclaimed. James regarded him menacingly, but Anthony held him back to avoid a full-on fistfight. I am not. My dad told me the story himself. You're calling my dad a liar, fat ass? James shouted indignantly. Charles cast his eyes down, not wanting to meet James' angry gaze. He was 13, and although the jibe about his weight hurt, he was still young enough to believe that everything their parents told them was the truth. He was okay with calling James a liar, but to call his father, an adult, a liar, was an entirely different animal. Sorry, James, Charles said, his face glowing red. James blinked at the sudden shift the conversation had taken. Me too. His face softened a bit. I'm sorry I called you a fat ass. It's okay. Anthony, sensing the drama was over, moved back over by the water. He flicked his cigarette into the scummy pond and went back to skipping rocks. He told me that back then the water was a lot higher and kids would jump off the rocks and into the water, James said. He said after a couple of guys died, they closed the place up. Some of the kids that did sneak in said they saw ghosts or some shit. That makes sense, Charles said. It's the other part that sounds weird. Maybe it's true, though. Like a horror movie or something, Anthony added. Dad said that some of the kids kept coming down here even after they closed it up. They saw things like... Weird things, James said. Anthony nodded as if this were to be expected. The idea of ghosts was not unfathomable for his 12-year-old mind. If they died suddenly, like broke their necks when they dove in or or drown or whatever, they probably stuck around. Unfinished business or to try to keep other people from dying, Anthony offered. He spoke in a scholarly tone like a professor teaching the ways of the world to his pupils. Even Eddie and Tim had stopped playing checkers to regard Anthony with intense, wide eyes. Anthony looked up and saw that all his friends were staring at him now. He shrugged his shoulders and smiled. That's what I think, anyways. James nodded in agreement. This minor gesture made Anthony swell with pride. James was their de facto leader, after all, and any praise, spoken or not, was bragworthy. Eddie and Tim went back to their game, Eddie squinting in concentration. Want to all meet back up here? Tonight? James asked. Sure. Hey, James. Yeah? I was thinking about something. Can my little brother come with us? I know he's a little younger, but he isn't a spaz or anything. You want to bring your little brother? James asked with a chuckle. Well, yeah, I mean, if you guys don't mind. He looked over towards the other three for confirmation. They shrugged. I guess, James said. I'll bring my sister's Ouija board. Everybody meet me up here at 930. I gotta go and make sure I don't miss dinner. Our mom will never let us out after nine. Well, then don't come, James said. His tone was dismissive, but his eyes were sharp and predatory. We'll... we'll figure it out. Greg's grin was wide and toothy as he rode back to the house. Anthony had done what he said he would. He stood up and asked that Greg be included. He wouldn't let on that he had been there, and he knew he'd need to act surprised when Anthony asked him if he wanted to sneak out with him tonight. In most cases, he would never even consider sneaking out after curfew, 
but he knew he'd never get another chance like this one if he chickened out. His brother had stuck his neck out. The ride back felt a lot faster than the ride to the quarry because he felt like he was floating. That night, the two of them snuck out of the front door. Anthony had been adamant about Greg and himself bringing their keys. It wouldn't do to get home only to find out that they had locked themselves out. Greg double-checked the pocket of his jeans and assured Anthony he was ready. The two of them had left their bikes in the yard to keep from having to open the garage and pushed them halfway down the street before mounting up. They made their way down the various streets cautiously. The streetlights illuminated the way for most of the trip, but the last half mile was on the outskirts, where the lights were fewer and far between. Anthony narrowly avoided a pothole that would have sent him ass over tea kettle and ended the night in the emergency room instead of the quarry. Calling his parents from the ER to tell them he and Greg had snuck out and landed in the hospital would be a surefire way to end up in the morgue shortly thereafter. They parked their bikes where they had stashed them earlier that day and Greg hit the button on the side of his watch to illuminate the time. It was a quarter to ten and the two of them moved as quickly as they could without falling down the pit where the rest of the James gang was waiting. They were sitting in a semicircle with candles and the Ouija board sitting in the center. After perfunctory introductions of the newest member of the gang, Anthony and Greg took their place, completing the circle. Are we all ready? James asked. Nobody said anything at first. They only stared at each other. Ready, Greg said. James acknowledged him with a smile and soon the others followed suit. Ready, James, Charles said. Ready, Anthony said. Ready, Eddie and Tim said in unison. James nodded again and beckoned them to touch the planchette with him, and of course, they obliged. The second Greg's fingers made contact with the light wood of the planchette, he felt an unnatural chill run up his spine. His balls started to draw up into his body as the first real fear of the night began to sink in. Greg had been nervous when they snuck out of the house because, if they were to get caught, his mother would do far more than shit a bird. She was bound to shit a flock of them. This felt different somehow. It was more unnatural. Greg surveyed the rest of the boys. Their faces were a plethora of silhouetted features, and each of them took on the appearance of skulls. Even Charles's unusually pudgy face appeared gaunt in the candlelight. The pit's pool of water lay stagnant, and the smell of the sludge and algae hung in the air. He was vaguely aware that Anthony's breath was coming out in hitches and jerks. Are there any spirits here? James asked suddenly. Greg looked up at him, and even in the low candlelight, he could see that he was going pale. Nothing happened at first, and everyone, Greg included, let out a sigh of relief. He hadn't really expected anything to happen, but the unknown had terrified Greg. Before he could get far into his own inner monologue, the wooden planchette moved, slowly, to the yes on the board. What in the actual fuck, Anthony said. Greg looked over at his brother, who was now ghostly white. At a glance, he could see that everyone else was too. Pale, but with a creepy smile that had been plastered to his face, and his eyes appeared to glaze over. What is your name? Greg asked. It was out of his mouth before he could stop the compulsion, and Anthony stared at him mouth agape. Greg opened his mouth to apologize when the planchette once again began to move, until it came to rest on the letter, N. They watched in fascination as the word Nergal was spelled out before him. 
Greg was about to ask it another question when it suddenly started to move again. This time, it spelled out, Jagon. I guess there's two of them, James said. I'm done. Charles pulled his hand back from the planchette and started to get to his feet. James looked at him, pointedly annoyed, and rolled his eyes. Don't be such a baby. I'm not being a baby. I'm just done with this shit. This is creepy. Just sit down. Fuck you, James. I said I'm fucking done with... Charles was silenced mid-sentence as a shadow coming from the pond wrapped itself around his throat. His hands flew up to his neck as his air was cut off. Greg screamed and jumped back as he saw tentacles reaching for him. They appeared to be made up of the shadows. Charles' face was turning purple when he fell to the ground, still clutching his throat as the shade dragged him back towards the water. Greg sprung to his feet and turned toward his brother, who was already up and backing away from the tentacles. Eddie and Tim were both fighting against the shadows that had grabbed them by their legs, and James was being dragged by his arm into the water. His screams were ear-piercing at first, but were soon cut short into a gurgle as his face was pulled underwater. Greg would have continued to sit and stare at James as a tentacle wrapped itself around his leg had he not felt someone yank him by the back of his shirt. His collar tightened around his throat as he had a moment of panic. It has me, he thought, as he pulled forward towards the pool to escape the force pulling him. Anthony spun him around and leaned down into his face. His lips were moving, but Greg couldn't hear him over the sound of guttural, inhuman screaming. Terror was taking over when Anthony brought his hand across his face. Greg blinked wildly and tears began to well up in the corner of his eyes. Anthony had never hit him like that, but suddenly the sound coming out of his mouth was audible. Run, Greg, Anthony screamed. Greg didn't need to be told twice. He took off in a sprint past Anthony, who followed closely behind him as they beat up the path toward their bikes. Greg was too terrified to look over his shoulder to see if they were being followed and mounted his bike after a running start. He could hear Anthony pedaling behind him. He felt his heart beating out of his chest as he pedaled like a mad bastard trying to beat the devil. When he had cleared the first two streets, he snuck a glance behind him and saw that Anthony was at least 15 feet back. He slowed a bit and allowed him to catch up. As they pulled up to their house, Greg's bike struck the curb and he was thrown from it. He landed hard on his shoulder and rolled onto his back. Anthony came up next to him and bailed off his bike without stopping. He ran to Greg and pulled him up into his lap. They were both breathing hard and tears were flowing freely as Greg crawled up his brother's body to embrace him. Anthony hugged him back and soon they were both sobbing and screaming into each other's shoulder. Thank you so much, Greg said between sobs. Thank you for grabbing me. I love you, Anthony said. It seemed to be the only thing he could say. He was still saying it when a black tentacle reached out from the darkness and wrapped them both into a cold embrace. Hey, spookies, I hope that got you in a good mindset for the weekend or whenever you may be listening to this. Did you know the team here at Weekly Spooky just released a television series? It's true. It's called Found Footage, the series. It's an anthology television show with eight stories from six directors. It features work by Weekly Spooky regulars Dan Wilder, Joe Salmo, Shane Migliavaca, Tim Castle, and myself. You can watch it completely free by going to 2 TV on your Roku, Fire Stick, PlayStation, or Xbox, and punching in found footage of the series. It's completely free to watch on Tubi TV. Give it a watch when you're done listening to this, and I promise you, you'll have a scary good time. But now, my friends, it's time for the terrors 
of home ownership as we head to the homecoming after these quick words. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Homecoming by Joe Salmo. Brandon pulled the key ring from his pocket of the worn blue jeans he wore. Christy danced impatiently from foot to foot behind him in the cold morning air. Hurry up, Brandon, it's freezing out here, she said as a cloud of her frozen breath escaped her mouth. First thing we're going to do is have to get these locks changed. This key isn't working right, Brandon said over his shoulder back at his fiance. I just hope the heat is turned on. I can't believe you went out and got us a house without letting me see it first, she said and rubbed her arms. It's more romantic that way. Besides, it's all my money. Brandon said, as the key finally did its job, and the lock clicked. He swung the door open and turned towards Christy. Shall I carry you over the threshold? he asked. Not until we're married, Bran. Let's just get warm, Christy said and pushed past him. He heard her boots click on the hardwood floors of the living room. This place is huge, he heard her say from deep within the house. It put a smile on his face that she liked the house he picked out. He entered and closed the door behind him. How much did you pay for this place, Bran? She asked as he entered the kitchen behind her. She ran her hands over the granite countertop. It was so smooth. Now don't you worry about that, he replied and wrapped his arms around her. She squealed and started to giggle. How can we afford this place? I got it all covered. I've been saving up for a while now. If I take some overtime down at the shop every week, we should be just fine. I talked to Sam. He said I could work Saturdays, Brandon said. It's beautiful. When do we move in? She asked. As soon as we're done here, I got the truck for the whole day, he said back. This is going to be great. We can start a family, Brandon finished. 
She smiled back at him and kissed him on the mouth, making a loud smacking noise with her lips when they separated. Let's go. You know I don't have much at my mom's, she said and skipped towards the front door. Brandon watched her go. It wasn't just to see her backside, although it was quite impressive. It was her youthfulness that really attracted him to her. They had met in high school. He was a senior, but she was only a freshman. They didn't really talk until Christy's mom had to bring her car into the shop Brandon worked at after graduation. They were nearly inseparable ever since. He followed her out the door. Night fell across the town early in the wintertime. It was only 6.30pm, but the streetlights have come on already when they pulled up in Sam's borrowed truck full of their possessions. Brandon backed it right up to the front door so they didn't have to walk as far. Come on, babe, let's get this stuff inside. We need to christen each room, you know, Brandon said, patting Christy on the behind. Once we get this stuff inside, I'm going to be too tired, she said, and watched the smile leave Brandon's face. Well, maybe two rooms, she said coyly. They carried the boxes inside and placed them in the rooms which were labeled on them. They didn't have much in the way of furniture. They were using lawn chairs temporarily in the living room. It would take another week or so for Brandon to get enough money to get a couch from one of those rental places. You know, Bran, I was thinking now that we have our own house, that maybe I should get a job, Christy said as she placed a milk crate down in the living room. Brandon placed the TV on top of it. At least they had a flat screen and not one of those old heavy TVs, he thought to himself. I'll bring the truck back tomorrow. Why don't we order a pizza and get cleaned up? Brandon said, kissing his fiance. Sounds good to me. I could use a hot shower, Christy said, and headed upstairs. Brandon ordered a pizza quick and followed her up. He could hear the shower running as he entered their bedroom. He started to assemble the wooden frame before he lacked all ambition. He just finished when he heard a knock on the door. He raced downstairs to get the pizza. After they were full, they made their way to the bedroom. He was glad he'd finished putting the bed together. They hopped onto the mattress and started to get undressed. Brandon awoke sometime in the night. He sat up and looked around their bedroom. It was like a dream come true. He turned back to his bride-to-be and smiled. He threw on his pants and headed down to the kitchen to grab himself a drink. He hoped there was a beer or two left over. Nothing was as good as a cold beer after sex, he thought. He let out a wahoo when he opened the fridge and saw there was plenty left. He grabbed a bottle and twisted the top off. He took a long pull off the bottle before leaning against the counter, looking over the boxes he had yet to unpack. A chore that he really didn't mind having to do. Being out on their own was worth it, even if they didn't have much. He didn't mind Christie's parents. Well, her foster parents. Even though they'd split up, both of them continued to be a part of her life. She had lived with her foster mother since they divorced two years ago. Sometimes Christy would tell him that she wanted to know her real parents, but she had no way of knowing. Her foster parents refused to help her. Brandon heard a thump from upstairs. Babe? He called out, but only silence followed. He put his beer down on the counter and moved towards the stairs. He heard no movement upstairs. Maybe it's just the house settling, he said and went back to his bottle. A loud thump came from upstairs, this time with a scream. It was not the house settling. He ran to the stairs, but a half dozen steps up he froze. 
Standing at the top of the stairs was a black form. Its eyes glowed red with hatred. Instrusus, it said in a guttural voice. Brandon felt his knees give out, and he fell back onto the hard kitchen floor. He slid into the corner of the cabinets. Brandon was paralyzed with fear, but he heard something coming down the stairs, and Christy was screaming. He couldn't turn his head to look. He listened as the noise went through the kitchen to the hall, and then he heard a door open and slam shut. Then, there was only silence. It took him another minute before he could move. He got to his feet and called out to Christy, but he heard no reply. He ran into the hall and looked for her. He saw a small blood trail leading to the basement door. He grabbed a flashlight in the living room and headed towards the basement. He placed his hand on the knob and yanked it open, not sure what to expect, but only darkness greeted him. He shone the light on the wooden basement steps. He saw the same blood trail leading down into the abyss. Christy, he called out. There was no reply. He took a test step down and waited. For what, he wasn't sure. He continued down into the darkness. He'd never been in the basement before. When he came to look over the house, he had Sam look over the furnace and other things in the basement. His boss knew more about those kinds of things. Now he wished he'd gone down those stairs before, to know what he was walking into. He reached the bottom of the stairs and shone the light around the basement. He followed the trail of blood that led off to the right from the stairs. A moment later, he came to a wooden wall, with a door built in with odd symbols marked in black paint on it. Brandon paused and took a deep breath. The hairs on the back of his neck rose, and he felt rooted in place. What if the thing he saw at the top of the stairs was in here? What if it had Christy? He looked around the old wooden shelves for some kind of weapon, although he didn't know what good it would do. Brandon found a crowbar and picked it up with his left hand. He shined the light on the door that led deeper into the basement. The symbols written in black paint there looked foreboding to him. He couldn't place why, but something primordial told him to run. Leave Christy and run. He couldn't leave her, though. She was the only thing that made existence worth it for him. He took a deep breath, trying to gather his resolve and grab the handle of the wooden door. It was hot to the touch, and he yanked his hand back. He used a rag he found to grab it a second time and yanked it open. Dancing flames met him, the heat off which assaulted him immediately. He saw Christy, surrounded by a ring of fire, her legs bound at her slender ankles and her hands tied behind her back with some kind of leather strap. She was still naked from their foray earlier, her short cropped blonde hair sticking to her face with sweat generated by the heat. Christy, he called out and took a step closer. Christy's head snapped towards him. No, Brandon, stay back, she called out with panic in her voice. A shadow moved off to the left. Brandon barely caught the movement out of the corner of his eye. Instrusus, the thing said toward him. Christy, are you okay? Brandon said, facing the shadow and sidestepping toward the circle of flame. I'm okay, she said. Brandon, run, just run, she said. 
I can't leave you, he said back and watched the shadow move closer. Somehow it was darker than the blackness behind it. Lex de Bay in Sephiroth. It said in a hateful voice. What does it want? Brandon asked his fiance. He could feel the heat on his bare back. He was only a few feet from the flames. I don't know. I don't understand it, she said. Can you move? If you were free? Brandon asked. The creature said and moved closer to Brandon taking a swipe at him with a shadowy claw. Fuck off, he said as he ducked back, the flames nearly licking his flesh. He shone the light from the flashlight on the creature, and it wailed and recoiled back into the recesses of the chamber. Brandon put the flashlight in his mouth, keeping it trained on the last place he saw the creature. He dug into his jeans' front pocket. He fumbled for a few seconds. Where did it go? Christy called out. Brandon pulled his hand out of his pocket and smiled with success. He held his pocket knife up in the light from the flames. He looked down at his bare feet and sighed. This was going to hurt. He gave one more quick glance around for the creature before leaping over the flames. They burned his feet and the bottom of his jeans, and he bit his tongue to keep the scream inside. He cut the leather holding her hands. Suddenly, the flames died out. The room sank into darkness. Here, Brandon said, placing the knife in Christie's hands. Cut yourself loose. He shone the flashlight around the room, the light slowly dying as the battery drained of life. As it dimmed, he saw the red, hateful eyes from the creature in the corner of the room. It was moving side to side, as if brimming with energy, but no way to expel it. Mortis es pro vobis, it said, and started to move closer. Brandon dropped the dying light and gripped the crowbar in both hands. Come on, you son of a bitch, he called out to the darkness. Brandon, no matter what, I love you, Christy said. The creature screamed in the darkness. And the attack didn't come. I love you too, Christy, he replied. Once again, the creature screamed. Brandon could just barely make out its shape on the floor. Curled up in a fetal position, it took him a minute to understand. He swung the crowbar down across the monster, who was now not much more than just a shadow. The physical form of the creature cried out as Brandon rained down blows with the crowbar, Christy cheering him on. She grabbed the flashlight and tapped it against her arm. The beam lit up the small chamber, and she aimed it at the creature. It screamed and began to smoke from the light. Brandon didn't stop swinging until the muscles in his arms gave out. He collapsed on the floor, exhausted. Christy rushed to his side, tears streaming from her face. She wrapped her arms around him, dropping the flashlight. The light died, and they sat there, in the darkness. What the fuck was that thing? Brandon asked. I don't know, Christy replied. Just then, a white light lit up the room from behind them. They both turned towards the light. A ghostly woman stood there in a white dress that flowed around her, as if by a gentle breeze. But there wasn't one. They could see through her form. Her face looked so much like Christie's, it was uncanny. It smiled down at them, then floated closer. That's when they noticed 
she had no feet. The transparent body was just dissipated at the ankles. Neither of them felt scared. In fact, the incorporeal woman gave off a feeling of peace. It reached out with a ghostly hand. My Kate, it said in a voice that sounded far away, you have broken the demon's hold on our family. Mom? Kate asked, standing up in front of the ghostly image. Is it really you? Yes, Kate. This was my house. I was raped and I died there on that altar, murdered by the same demon you have just defeated. I didn't have the love in my life that you do. With that, the ghost turned towards Brandon. Thank you. It was your love for my daughter that saved her and her family. No problem, Brandon said, getting to his feet and kicking the demon's body one more time for good measure. My mother was into the occult in the 60s. She accidentally summoned that demon from the abyss. It haunted her throughout her entire life. She died when I was only six years old in a bedroom upstairs, the beast trying to impregnate her to give birth to a child born of both demon and human, a creature of evil that would be born from this world, therefore couldn't be banished from it, a loophole to allow evil in. The demon was too rough on her. It haunted me as well. I fell victim to it. I am so glad you are safe, Christy. Now we can rest in peace, no longer plagued by the demon. Uh, check this out, Brandon said, drawing attention to the corpse on the ground. It began to smolder and turn to ash. It cannot remain on the physical plane, living or dead, the ghost said. You have cleansed your world from this evil. I must go. I have been waiting a long time for this, the image of Christie's mom said, and began to rise toward the ceiling. I love you, daughter. Thank you, it said, and disappeared up through the house. Christie was crying in the now darkness left in the basement. Brandon took her hand, and together they made their way to the stairs and up to the kitchen. He fawned over the wound on her head that was bleeding. He patched her up the best he could and tried to convince her to go to the hospital, but she wasn't interested. Thank you, Brandon. You mean the world to me, Christy said, and wrapped her arms around him. He smiled and tried to hide the tear in his eyes from her. He was too macho to show that he was crying. My hero she said in a sing-song voice and gave him a peck on the cheek. They both cracked up laughing, not just from her corny joke, but from all the tension of their first night in their new home. Well, I can tell you from experience, homeownership can be a true nightmare, and that's just when you need a plumber and it's a holiday weekend. Or when your HVAC starts making that sound that means it too will soon die. But what about the home maintenance that isn't quite traditional and isn't quite expensive, but boy, is it inconvenient and uh, messy. This next one is called The Dead Thing Under the House, and I think it's the kind of thing you'll like if you like that kind of thing right after these quick words. 
from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The Dead Thing Under the House by David O'Han. Old man Jennings ventured from his home on Sundays. He'd amble down the gravel path that led from his porch to his mailbox for the weekly accumulation of sales ads and bills and promptly retreat into seclusion. In Blake's 31 years, he'd never seen anyone come to visit Meadowview's mysterious hermit. Once a week, a lawn care service came out to take care of his yard. Twice a year, someone power-washing his siding. He paid them all with a check, slipped through the mail slot when they were finished. A barred door with two locks hung on both the front and rear of the house, and they stayed shut. He would open the ornate front door with its beveled stained glass window to enjoy the weather, but never the security door. His windows were much the same with heavy, blackout curtains on the inside and bars on the out. His groceries were delivered promptly at one in the afternoon every Thursday for as long as Blake could remember. A little doggy door, for lack of a better term, would lift out and Jennings would pull the bags through the obscure solitude of his self-imposed prison. Theorizing about what went on inside the home was a Meadowview pastime as familiar as the annual crawdad boil or the town's community yard sale. Depending on who you asked, old man Jennings was a Satanist, a serial killer, or a space alien. Some people even believed he was already dead and his ghost was just stuck there. Blake didn't believe any of it. The ancient coot would have to leave the house to murder people, after all. As kids, Blake and his friends dedicated enough hours spying on the man to know that that never happened. As an adult, his divorce had forced him to move back in with his mother, directly across the street from Jennings. 
Blake found himself peering through the blinds out of habit, and the geezer still stayed locked inside, just like he always had. So it would be an understatement to say Blake was shocked to find old man Jennings standing on the porch when he answered the geriatric's frantic knocking. Jennings' hair was an explosion of white that jutted from his dark scalp in all directions. The mane was much more ample than Blake's own, which was retreating faster than a chubby kid at fat camp. Jennings stood on the porch with the grim stature and utter silence of an animated skeleton. Blake shut the door, removed the chain lock, and opened it fully. Mr. Jennings, are you lost? No, Jennings said. There's something dead in my crawl space. Blake squinted at the elderly man. Pretty sure there's people that take care of that. There is, but I don't like strangers. Jennings pointed a bony, accusatory finger at Blake. That's why I came to you. I've known you longer than... anyone. We don't really know each other, though, Blake muttered in confusion. Then how did you know my name? Jennings' lips peeled away from the toothbrush commercial quality chompers in what might have been a genuine smile. Is your mother home? Blake shook his head. She's in Toledo visiting my sister. Oh, how is Sharon? Still married to that banker? Jennings looked away and tisked. Sorry about your own divorce, by the by. Blake's jaw dropped open. How'd you know about that? Just because I don't leave my house doesn't mean I don't talk to my neighbors, Jennings shrugged. Your mother's been my pen pal since 1984. Blake looked over Jennings' shoulder at his home. My mom sends you letters? From across the street? She respects my eccentricities. Jennings jabbed his thumb toward the street. Speaking of, think you can help me with the dead thing under the house? Blake sighed. Yeah, let me change into something else first. He shut the door and headed upstairs. He wasn't about to mess up his favorite self-pity outfit crawling around in the mud and spiderwebs that surely occupied the crawl space. The thought of all those spiders hiding in the dark prickled his skin with a wave of primal terror. He pulled the Ghoulies 2 t-shirt away from his goosebumped flesh. Blake Sterling's father gave him the most heroic name in history before he split. However, it wasn't a name he ever lived up to. Spiders were only one of his many phobias. Stretch marks peeked over the band of his sweatpants from a childhood full of expired Twinkies and ding-dongs his mom brought home from her job at the gas station. Years of bullying led Blake the Blob away from the sweets and food in general, he looked like one of those kids the infomercial people feed for a nickel a day. His dainty form lacked definition or distinction, minus a single tattoo. His ex-wife's name was coiled around a rose over his heart. He got it the day she said she'd marry him. The mirror inside the closet door reminded him of all the reasons Kayla left. Blake grabbed a black t-shirt from a drawer and pulled it over his head before changing into a battered pair of Wranglers that were already stained from painting his kitchen. His face soured. It wasn't his kitchen anymore. He threw on his sneakers and didn't bother tying them. The crawl space was going to be more fun than his usual day of self-imposed purgatory. Blake slumped down the stairs and met Jennings on the porch. The two men made their way across the street and through the gate of Jennings' chain-link fence. 
A piece of the butterscotch lattice was removed from the side of the house to reveal the access point between the cinder blocks. The mid-morning sun was blocked by the trio of white oaks in the front yard leaving Blake to unravel the mysteries of the crawlspace on his own. The putrid sweet stench of rotting meat lingered leisurely from the opening. Blake knelt down and groaned. A bit tight, he said. It's called a crawlspace for a reason. Jennings tapped him on the shoulder with a small, metallic flashlight. The smell is strongest in my bedroom. Straight ahead fifteen feet, then hang a left. You should find whatever it is in that area. Right. Blake took the light and let its beams stag into the tangible darkness. Mr. Jennings, are you sure you don't want to call someone that knows what they're doing? You're a grown-up now. You can stop with the Mr. Jennings stuff. My name's Harp, and you do know what you're doing, Blake. You're pulling a carcass out from under my house for me. He turned to leave, then twisted back. Oh, I've got an apple pie cooling right now for you, too. Come get me when you're all finished. Blake shimmied into the space. The flashlight revealed a few broken spiderwebs dangling from the floor. Whatever died had crawled in along the same path that Blake now took, and the goosebumps quickly returned. He clamped the flashlight between his teeth and crawled along, panning his head from side to side looking for vagrant spiders as much as he was the dead thing. Once he made it what he surmised to be fifteen feet, he turned as Harp had instructed. A wave of steam swirled in front of his light, and he paused. Blake took the instrument from his mouth and huffed hard watching the breath fog. He crawled forward slowly, shivering at the sudden bite of cold pressing against his face. The progression was like stepping into a meat locker as he left the warm summer air behind. The temperature continued dropping with his advance. Something jutted out of the earth in front of him. He squinted at the shape, trying to discern its nature. It didn't help. Harp's pungent guess spread its perfume with exponential intensity as he inched closer. The light flickered and dimmed before it could reveal the source of the growing stench, and then went out completely. Blake continued onward, shaking his head like a dog in an attempt to bring back to life the tool. It worked. And how he wished it hadn't. The illumination fell on the mound of disturbed dirt, and then onto the arm. The very human arm that reached out of the shallow grave with its fingers furled in the soil. Blake followed the limb to the naked shoulder, up the livid flesh of the neck to the face. Between the strands of dirt-caked blonde hair, the dead woman's expression was frozen in a final moment of stark terror. The flashlight plopped next to the corpse with Blake's panicked screaming. He scurried backwards until he was far enough away to risk taking his eyes off the corpse and turned in a mad dash for the exit. Blake collapsed onto Harp's porch swing. The neglected chains called out in a demented screech at the arrival of its first guest in decades. Harp pushed open the security door and watched Blake shudder with heaving breaths. There's a dead woman under your house, Blake whispered. Harp leaned on the porch rail and crossed his arms. Just the one? What? Blake took his eyes off his shaking hands and looked at Harp. Was there only one body down there? I, I don't know. I didn't keep looking after I found that one. Why would there be more than one? Why are there any? 
Blake shot up. Why the fuck are you so calm right now? Exactly how many dead bodies under your house would you consider to be too many? Three, Harp answered matter-of-factly. Three would be very bad. Did you bring the body out? I'm not disturbing a crime scene. Do you know that she was murdered? Harp raised an eyebrow and held his hands open waiting for an answer. When Blake shook his head, he continued, So, it's not a crime scene. She might have crawled under there on her own. I need to see the body to be sure. I'll draw you a map because I am not going back down there to get her. Blake paced the porch. She was partially buried, so that rules out your theory. And she was pale. Harp opened the security door and held it ajar. She looked scared, and there was no blood around her. That sound right? Blake nodded. Harp gestured for him to enter the home. You'll be my first guest since 1981. Did... did you kill her? Blake watched the old man's face fall. No, but I know who did. One body means he's found me. Three would mean he's not alone. So let's hope you didn't miss any. Harp Jennings nodded for Blake to come in. The pie's ready. We need to talk. The tangy sweetness of the pie reminded him of the ones his mom served him every Saturday morning. It soothed him from the shock of his discovery. He speared a chunk of fruit and raised it to his mouth, savoring the smell after the one he faced in the crawl space. It went down a lot easier than Harp's tail. So, a psychic vampire killed the girl and buried her under your house to say hello. Blake asked, around a mouthful of pie. Moscon isn't a vampire, she's a mirai. Harp stood up from the faded, threadbare cushion of his couch and walked away. They leave their bodies at night to eat the souls of the living. That's definitely more believable? Blake got up and followed Harp down the hallway. Pictures hung with yellowed pieces of tape along the corridor, One showed a smiling, young Harp Jennings sitting atop a camel in front of a pyramid. Blake skipped the next few and found another showing Harp in furs with a pack of sled dogs. Harp passed through the archway of the kitchen. I wasn't always a homebody. Why aren't the pictures in frames? The Maroi can travel through mirrors. Harp pulled a pitcher from an archaic Frigidaire. A single picture hung on the door from a heart-shaped magnet. Harp and a woman standing at an altar. He touched her face lightly. I learned that one the hard way. Okay, let's pretend like I believe any of this. Why is Moscon pissed at you? The last time I saw him, I stuffed his mouth with garlic and sewed his lips shut before burying him. Harp sat two glasses on the counter. I'm pretty sure that's what did it. He poured the tea and handed a glass to Blake. I need you to help me kill him. Blake sipped the tea and shook his head. We need to call the cops and report the body. In the morning, Hart pointed at the floor. He continued before Blake could protest. Look, she's been there this long. One more night won't hurt. You think I'm crazy and I think there's a monster coming to kill me. Give me until morning to prove one of us right. It was a quarter past three in the morning, and Jennings was clearly insane. 
Blake's chin dipped closer to his chest as he nodded off once again. Hart poked him in the thigh with a sharpened branch from the front yard's oak trees. Blake snapped awake and clutched his makeshift spear, ready for a fight. Not that he'd ever won a fight in his life. The garlic bulb crinkled as Harp rolled it in his bony fist. We have to stay awake, boy. That bastard's coming tonight, Harp whispered. His eyes jumped around the room, looking for signs of movement. You said the bars keep him outside, and there's no mirrors he can use to sneak in here through. Blake stood up and dropped his spear on the coffee table. Even if he comes, we'll never see him. Damn, Harp licked his lips. I wanted to keep him out for so long that I never thought about needing to lure him in. Think we should open the door? Yes, we should. Blake squeezed Harp's arm gently. So that I can go home and call the cops to come and get the girl. There's no monsters, Harp. We'll get this sorted out in the morning and get you somewhere safe where you can get the help that you need. The help I need? Hart pushed Blake away. You foolish boy. I've seen things that would make your asshole pucker so tight you'd shit spaghetti noodles. He stormed to the door and threw it open. The stained glass motif shattered as it struck the wall and fell like colored hail. Harp worked the locks open and pushed the security door out of his way. He spun back into the house and lobbed the garlic at Blake. I'll show you I'm not some demented old coot, Blake. He pointed into the night. We'll just let him in. Then you'll see a real monster. Oh, yeah. You'll see, all right. This all ends right here when we push stakes through Moskin's heart and trap his demonic soul in a prison of rotting flesh for eternity. I'm not sure how that was supposed to change my mind about the demented part, Harp. Blake started toward the door. I'm going home now. Old man Jennings barred his path and pressed the point of his stake into Blake's breast. Harp's dark eyes narrowed with an intensity that made Blake shrink back. You're a coward, Blake. That's why the kids used to bully you, why you're always the first one laid off, and why your wife left you. You don't take risks. You don't challenge yourself. You never step outside your well-defined bubble of bullshit. Fuck you. Blake slapped the stake from Harp's hand and pushed the old man to the floor. You've been locked in here longer than I've been alive, and you call me a coward because I don't want to stay and play pretend with you? I may have failed at everything I've ever done, but at least I've done something. Blake glared down at Harp and realized what he'd done. He extended his hand to help him up, but before he finished his apology, Harp's boot caught him dead between the legs. Blake gasped and fell to the floor, trying not to return Harp's apple pie. The old man stood and dusted off the seat of his trousers. You're right, boy. I've been hiding in this house for 39 years, but for the 48 before, I was goddamn Harp Jennings. Harp dragged Blake upright by his collar. I swam with sharks in the wreckage of the Saratoga. I climbed two of the world's tallest mountains. I pilfered the pyramids for forgotten pharaohs. I dedicated my life to adventure and dangers and reaped treasures, the likes of which you can't even imagine. Then why are you hiding? Blake wheezed. Because Mosgun took my greatest treasure. Harp's voice cracked. His lips quivered and the fury in his eyes turned to miserable sadness. I killed a lot of monsters and a lot of men that weren't no better. 
but I couldn't stop him from taking my Mabel. I didn't lock myself in here because I'm afraid of Moscon killing me. I locked myself in here so he wouldn't kill no one else that I loved. I, I, I don't know what to say. Blake threw his hands in the air. Maybe you murdered the girl under the house, or maybe there's a soul-sucking monster coming to get you. Either way, I'd feel a lot safer as far away from you as possible. Blake hung his head with a sigh and walked around Jennings, straight out the door. He didn't look up until he was safely through the chain-link gate. His muscles tensed against his attempts to look back at the home. The image of old man Jennings rushing down the gravel path with the stake over his head rippled Blake's flesh with goosebumps. He turned, slowly, expecting the worst. Instead, he saw Harp, leaning on the doorframe, in defeat. Blake gave him a curt nod and crossed the street quickly. In his haste, he completely overlooked the man in the black peacoat strolling down the sidewalk. Blake bumped into the man and apologized. No worries, the man said. His voice was like, Winter fog, low and cool. He looked Blake over. It's quite some neighborhood here. Like a postcard, really. Yeah, it's pretty nice. Have a good evening, Blake said as he hurried up to his porch. I see why my old pal Harper chose this place, the man called after him. Blake turned to find the sidewalk, empty once more. He hurried inside and locked the deadbolt and the chain lock. He kicked his shoes off and padded up the stairs to his room. He was going to put his comfortable clothes back on and raid his mother's gin collection until he forgot all about the dead body, Harp Jennings, and the creepy man on the sidewalk. He peeked through the blinds at Jennings' house. The old man waved at him and pulled the security door shut. The blinds snapped together noisily as Blake turned and went to the closet. He jumped away with a scream that would have made D. Wallace jealous. His haggard reflection glared back at him in the mirror. He laughed at his own panic and bent down to retrieve his sweats and t-shirt from the closet floor. Blake paused, dropping the clothes, and rubbed his fingertips together, observing the damp soil that came off of them. His quivering breath fogged before him, and he fell over backwards. Filthy blonde hair poked between the hanging jeans and slacks. The lamplight reflected pathetically on the cold, lifeless skin that stretched forth and crawled along the floor. Blake's panicked breaths perverted his words to inarticulate squeals and grunts. He found his voice as the frigid fingers curled around his ankles and jerked him across the carpet. The dead thing was no longer under the house. Blake's screaming would stop soon. The newly risen were full of such insatiable hunger. Harp sighed and clicked the locks into place. A man grasped the bars of the security door and leaned in, close. A series of small scars lined his tanned lips where they'd once been sewn together. His hands smoked as they wrung the iron, but the man in the black peacoat smiled through the pain. Harp recoiled away and raised his wooden stake. It seems there's a vacancy across the street, he hissed. What do you say, Harper? Won't you be my neighbor? Harp lunged forward, the stake jabbed between the bars. Moscon took a calm step away and shook his head. Meadowview is such a lovely place to raise a family, Harper. You'd know that if I hadn't killed yours. 
Moscon turned with a chuckle and crunched along the gravel path. There's such potential in these small towns. Come inside and let's finish this, Harp growled. No, Moscon held his arms wide. See how easy it is to walk away from a fight, Harper? You could have done that once. Now you're going to hide behind your bars and your steaks and your garlic, and you're going to watch as you become the last man in Meadowview. Then, when there's no one left for you to care about, I'm going to turn you and bury you right there in your crawl space. I'll stitch your lips around garlic cloves with a stake in your chest so you can't do anything more than spend your eternity rotting away. In stillness, just some undead thing under the house. Harp watched as Moskin's clothes fell, empty to the sidewalk, as his body twisted into a tower of fog that disappeared into the pre-dawn sky. Harp opened the security door and pushed it out of his way. Moskin was a monster of his word. Harp ambled over to his porch swing and sat down for the symphony of squeaks and pops of the neglected chain. It groaned as his long legs pushed him in a gentle rhythm, and Harp stared at the stake, clutched in his arthritic hands. Maybe he still had one more adventure left in him. If you love what we do here at Weekly Spooky and you want to support us, there are a couple of ways to do it. One costs you nothing at all. Just make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting app and leave us a five-star rating, whether it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartMedia, anywhere you listen to podcasts. That rating helps tell new listeners that they want to get in on the spooky. And if you want to go one step further than that, you can just go to Weekly Spooky. And click on Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can get bonus episodes. But now, it's time to head to the summer, even though we're still in the winter, with the spirit of Langley Pond. After these quick words from our sponsors. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Spirit of Langley Pond by Charles Campbell Summer, 1981 Elena Ann Sanders swam for all she was worth. She could hear the echo of her mother's sentiment in her mind. Don't get into any trouble. Call me if you need me to come get you. No questions asked. Elena wished she had listened to her mother. Instead, it was nearly midnight, and she was swimming for her life to shore. Elena was beginning to think she was going to make it. She was going to see her mother again. The crack of a gunshot was the last sound Elena heard before the darkness of the water claimed her. Langley Pond was going to be her grave.
Summer, 2021. Langley Pond had changed quite a bit in the last 40 years. Being billed as the largest pond in North America, it was nearly the size of a lake. No longer were clay mudslides used as makeshift boat ramps. Now, there were full-fledged paved boat ramps descending into the water. There were designated picnic areas spread around the shoreline along with a few cabins that were rented nearly every weekend. It was almost ten o'clock at night, and the humidity of the day still hung in the air. Brianna Turner glanced at her cell phone. It was 82 degrees. Ugh, I can't believe how hot it is, Brianna said. She peeled a strand of sweat-stuck hair from her forehead and grinned at her boyfriend, Andy Spires. Andy smiled back and said, Yeah, it was over a hundred today. Thought we might get a little relief by being near the water and all. Guess not. At least we have the cabin with the window unit. That's a plus. You're right. That's a plus. Brianna agreed. They both turned toward the woods when they heard snapping twigs and shuffling feet. Hey, Frog, y'all catch anything? Andy asked when he saw Frog Spradley and his girl of the week. Jenny Coggins clear the tree line into their sight. Had a few nibbles, but nothing big. Threw them all back, Frog said. Jenny smiled, but she didn't look all that happy to be traipsing through the woods. Good thing we brought beanie weenies then, Andy said. Jenny gave him the you-can't-be-serious look, and Frog replied, Damn, man, you are a lifesaver. Beanie weenies are the shit. I thought I'd have to break out the Vienna sausages and saltine crackers. Hey, Jenny, you want to go in the cabin and cool off? Brianna asked. Yes, Jenny shouted. It was hot. She was sticky. And if this excursion with Frog taught her anything, she was definitely an inside girl. The boys watched as the girls walked into the cabin. Okay, Frog, where'd you find that one? Andy asked. Frog gave him a sneaky smile and sheepishly shrugged his shoulders. Come on, man. I don't recognize her. She ain't one of your usual valley honeys. She's from Martinez, Frog whispered. Why are you whispering? She can't hear us out here. What in the world were you doing in Martinez? And how'd you get her? She looks too sophisticated to be stomping around Langley Pond. Especially with you. The Prince of the Valley. She don't know nothing about the valley, does she? Andy asked. Well, she does now. I told her about the spirit of Langley Pond, Frog replied. You didn't. And she hasn't left screaming? Not yet. Maybe it's because her phone died while we were fishing. She seemed more interested in whatever was on Instagram or Facebook than catching a catfish. Inside the Cabin Oh my god, that AC feels fantastic, Jenny said and stuck her face in front of the window unit. It was turned all the way up and Jenny's sandy blonde hair blew behind her like she was riding on the back of a motorcycle. Yeah, it's the only cabin out here with one. Andy sprang for the extra 60 bucks, said it would be worth it to sleep in comfort, and he ain't wrong, it's sticky as hell outside. How long you and Frog been seeing each other? Oh, um, I just met him yesterday, 
Where are you from? You ain't from the valley. Valley? What's the valley? Jenny asked. You're in it, Brianna answered and continued. You know that main road you took to get here? The one that went through a bunch of little bitty towns? Yeah, Jenny replied and turned to face Brianna. Brianna was grinning and her brown eyes were gleaming. Jenny really paid attention to Brianna for the first time, and she had this country girl pretty thing going for her. She looked like she could be fun in the sack, but could kick your ass out of it if necessary. Well, that road is 421, and 421 is the valley. Rednecks for as far as the eye can see. And you got yourself what we call a valley prince. That right. Why is he a valley prince? He's a Spradley, and Spradleys have been around the valley for as long as anybody can remember. Everybody calls him Frog. I don't even know if that's his given name, but I know his daddy was called Frog and his daddy's daddy was called Frog. They own several businesses in the valley. His brother, Ricky, owns Valley Video. His other brother, Johnny, owns Spradley's fill-in station in Langley. His sister, Darnell, well, she owns a beauty shop in Gloverville named, can you guess, Spradley's Beauty Shop? Jenny asked as she shrugged her shoulders. Yep. Nailed it. So if you're from the Valley, you know who the Spradleys are. Oh, really? That's good to know. So what do you know about this spirit he was telling me about while we were fishing? He didn't tell you about the spirit of Langley Pond. Please tell me he didn't try to scare you with that story. Brianna suppressed a chuckle. He did, and it did freak me out a bit. Is there any truth behind it? From what I've heard, these local legends start with a grain of truth somewhere, and that grain grows and gets exaggerated over the years. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Am I wrong? Should I be afraid of a ghost in the pond? Jenny asked. Brianna smiled and motioned for Jenny to take a seat in the living room. Yeah, I know about the grain that started the story. It was something that really happened about 40 years ago. It went something like this. Summer, 1981. It was Friday morning, and Elena bid her mother farewell for the weekend. Her mother's voice issued a lifeline as Elena walked out the door to meet her boyfriend, Dustin Hines. Don't get into any trouble. Call me if you need me to come get you. No questions asked. Elena told her mother not to worry and that she would be home on Sunday night. Hey, babe, Dustin said as Elena hopped into his Ford pickup. She leaned over and gave Dustin a quick kiss before she pounded the dashboard, which meant it was time to burn rubber. Dustin pulled out of the driveway and beelined to Belvedere Clearwater Road. Finally! Elena shouted. She was ready to have a weekend alone with Dustin. They had been talking about it for the better part of six months. Elena leaned her head out of the open window to feel the wind in her face. Hey babe, watch out for telephone poles. You don't want to get your head knocked off. It would really uh, put a damper on the weekend, Dustin said as he tugged on Elena's arm. Okay, okay, I'm just excited, that's all. I know it's just Langley Pond. Just Langley Pond, 
Just Langley Pond? You know it's the pride of the valley, Dustin said. He looked at Elena with his blue eyes, and he could see her melt. Just a little. You're laying it on a little thick there, ain't ya? Everybody knows Richardson's Lake is the pride of the valley, she said, enamored with her man. I beg to differ. You can't put a boat on Richardson's Lake, and I really don't know how they can call that tiny mud puddle a lake anyway. Langley Pond should be a lake. I mean, it's as big as one. Speaking of boats, Elena interrupted, does your daddy still have that John boat at Langley Pond? He does, Dustin smiled. Trolling motor? In the back of the truck, Dustin answered. Sweet, Elena replied. The pair rode in silence for the next nine minutes. Elena hopped out of the truck as soon as it rolled to a stop just inside the confines of Langley Pond. I can't wait to jump in the water, Elena screamed and shed her clothing as fast as she could, revealing her bathing suit underneath. Dang, girl, you ain't gonna wait for me to put up the tent? Dustin asked the air. Elena was already splashing in the water. Dustin set up the two-person tent and pulled the trolling motor from the back of the truck. Elena swam to shore when she saw the tent was all set up and the trolling motor was attached to the john boat. Hey, babe, we gonna do some night fishing? The bass should be popping top water plugs tonight, Elena said as she took a seat in the lawn chair set outside the tent. I reckon we can do that. Mama packed up some ham sandwiches in the small cooler and I got papsed in the biggin. I love you, Dustin. Shut up, you do not. You just want me for my money, Dustin joked. The couple ate sandwiches, drank beer, let their food and drink settle before they made clumsy love in the tent. Elena fell asleep with Dustin's arms wrapped around her. She woke up, five hours later, alone. Dustin? You outside? Elena asked as she rubbed her eyes and stretched. She shuffled out of the tent and heard the frogs croaking their night tunes. The crickets returned a symphony of their own. Dustin? Where you at? You know you can pee in front of me, Elena shouted. She looked around and was comforted that the truck was still parked in the same spot, so Dustin didn't decide to go on a midnight snack run and leave her out here all alone. But he didn't answer her, and that was a reason for concern until she saw the light from the flashlight out in the middle of the pond. The John boat wasn't there. That sorry sack of potatoes, Elena shouted. Dustin, get your ass back over here and pick me up. She hollered into the night toward the light of the boat. The light flashed in her direction, but the boat didn't move. Don't make me swim out there, Dustin. I swear I will, and I'll make so much noise that no fish is going to bite for the rest of the night. Don't test me. Elena was leaving playful and moving into pissed off. The light flashed in her direction once more, but the boat still did not move. Okay, I'm coming. Elena sloshed into the pond and began swimming toward the boat. The boat still didn't move. The longer she swam, the angrier she became. He better not dare ask for sex the rest of the trip, is what she was thinking. Not even a hand job. 
The light still shined like a beacon from a lonely lighthouse. Elena was about thirty yards away from the John boat when she realized something was very, very wrong. There was a figure standing in the center of the boat, a figure that was a mite bit shorter than her boyfriend. That was their John boat. But that wasn't Dustin. Elena swam a little closer to see if she could make out who it was standing in the boat and screamed in horror when she saw what the man was holding in his left hand. It couldn't be real. It had to be some kind of joke. Her mind was telling her someone was just pranking her. The man in the boat swung his left arm up around and launched the severed head of Dustin Hines in Elena's direction. She waited what seemed like hours on the sound of the splash. And when the sound came, Elena turned around and swam for all she was worth. Elena felt as if bricks were weighing her down. The burning in her lungs felt like she inhaled lit gasoline. She could hear the echo of her mother's sentiment in her mind. Don't get into any trouble. Call me if you need me to come get you. No questions asked. Elena wished that she had listened to her mother. Instead, she was swimming for her life to shore. Elena was beginning to think she was going to make it. She was going to see her mother again. The crack of a gunshot was the last sound Elena heard before the darkness of the water claimed her. Langley Pond was going to be her grave. Summer, 2021. Jenny's face was flush when Brianna finished the story. Was that true? What you told me? She asked. Pretty much. I don't know if that's exactly how the conversations went down, but the facts are Elena and Dustin went to Langley Pond. Dustin's head was chopped off. They found the body in the boat, and Elena had been shot in the head. It took them a while to find her body, though. Longer than it probably should have. They say her body was in the pond long enough for her spirit to be trapped here. Some people say they can hear splashing around and hollering sometimes. Me, I think it's just the bass having their late-night snacks. They can make quite a ruckus when they're attacking frogs, lizards, and whatnot. I wouldn't let it scare you too much, though. Brianna finished and patted Jenny on her hands. Did they ever catch the guy that did it? Jenny asked. Well, that's the thing. They did. That's how we got this story that's been passed down for 40 years, but he was shot in the head with a long-range rifle as he was escorted to the courthouse. Let's just say the police didn't spend a lot of time looking for the killer of Billy Jean Morris. From what's been passed down, a lot of folks think it was set up that way. The police can turn a blind eye sometimes when it comes to valley justice, especially when it's a couple of local kids that were killed. Kids that everybody knew. Kids that everybody loved. There were some rumors that it was Elena's daddy or even Dustin's daddy. They were both avid hunters with rifles to do the job. They weren't even questioned. I don't blame either one of them if they killed Billy Jean. He deserved it. Brianna finished. Jenny looked at her in all seriousness and said, What if Billy Jean didn't kill them? What if someone else did? 
And what if that someone else is still around? Jenny asked, clearly working herself up into something that Brianna thought was silly. Calm down, girl. It was Billy Jean. I know it was Billy Jean. It's a valley thing. You wouldn't understand. Now let's go see what those boys are up to. Frog was grinning from ear to ear as he saw the girls approach. Andy was downing another PBR. I was beginning to worry about you two. You get your girl talk in? Frog asked as he grabbed his own PBR. Yeah, something like that, Brianna replied and winked at Jenny to let her know it was okay. It was just a stupid local legend. Nothing to worry about. Frog, are we really having beanie weenies for dinner? I mean, I'd rather go to the store and grab some sandwich stuff. Maybe Brianna and I could run to the grocery store real quick. We'll get a bag of ice and some more of that beer y'all like. Frog was all set to disagree and force the beanie weenie supper, but when the B word came up, he changed his course of thinking. I think that'd be okay. What do you think, Andy? The girls can go get the sandwich stuff and another case of beer. I'll contribute ten bucks for the cause, Frog said and pulled a crinkled bill from his well-weathered leather wallet. Yeah, I reckon that'll be okay. Brianna, take her to the bylo where Jimmy works. He'll let you buy the beer with no ID. Brianna rolled her eyes at Andy like she didn't already know that. She had bought beer at that bylo since she was 14 years old. The Valley kids knew where to go without being ripped off. There was always the quick shop option where the owner would only sell the swill known as Milwaukee's Best for triple the labeled price to desperate teens. That's the only way he could get rid of the crap, and he had to carry it because it was such an under-the-table moneymaker for him. Any way he can stick it to the government and help raise the next generation of valley rats, the better, for his valley pride and his pockets. Andy tossed the truck keys to Brianna. Be careful, babe. Don't wreck my truck and don't get caught with that beer. Brianna gave him another eye roll and trotted to the driver's side. Jenny felt a wave of relief when Brianna started the engine and the cool air from the A.C. kissed her face. Andy, Frog said with a wicked grin. Yeah? I had Jenny going pretty good with the spirit of Langley Pond. You want to have some fun and scare the girls when they get back? More Jenny than Brianna. I know she's tough to scare. I don't know, man. That new girl might go off the deep end. I mean, you don't know her all that well, and it'll severely reduce your chances of playing hide the snake if you catch my drift. It'll be more like a -a whack-a-mole, Andy replied and smiled. I don't care, Frog began. I don't think she's going to give it up anyway. May as well have some fun with her. She's creeped out over the ghost of Elena Sanders. First, what did you have in mind? And second, if Brianna gets pissed, it's on you, Andy replied. Look, while they're gone, I'm going to go to the edge of the woods over yonder, Frog pointed to the shoreline at his left. You see that cluster of trees over there? Yeah. Well, I'm going to go over there behind them trees and start tossing some of the red bricks that Ricky put over in that clearing into the pond. He'll never miss them. He done forgot he put them out there. And check this out real quick. Give me a second. Frog ran to his car and Andy could hear him rustling before he came trotting back with a palm-sized speaker. It's a Bluetooth, man. I'm going to play some Halloween screams out of this bad boy. It works right off my phone. And while you're doing all this shit, where am I supposed to tell them you are? 
Tell them I went to the other side of the pond to go gigging. Brianna will believe that. She knows how much I love to go gigging. And when she finds out that's a lie, then me and my right hand are going to be best friends for the rest of the trip. I don't think so, Andy replied. You have to take the fun out of everything, man. Look, I will tell you that I was going gigging, and I'm going to disappear for a little while. Then you won't be lying, and you can act like you're just as pissed as the girls. I suspect I'll be taking Jenny home after this stunt, and you and Brianna will be all alone in the cabin. Frog grinned and poked his finger through the hole he made with his other hand. A smile ran across Andy's face. Now that sounds like a better plan, my man. I know nothing. I see nothing, I hear nothing, but the spirit of Elena Ann Sanders splashing and screaming in the water. That's the spirit, Frog replied without realizing the pun. Darkness was closing in on the valley when Andy saw the lights of his truck coming down the path. They're back, he shouted, which sent Frog scurrying for the tree line. Brianna and Jenny were still laughing from their conversation on the trip back. Hey girls, need a hand? Andy walked toward them. Where's Frog? was the first question from Jenny's lips, and Brianna already had her doubting eyes looking around for the mischievous valley prince. He'll be back directly. He went gigging on the other side of the pond. What's gigging? Jenny asked, thinking it was some made-up thing by these valley people. He went to kill his namesake. Brianna answered. Giggin is when you basically take a three-pronged metal spear and go stab frogs with them. Don't worry, though. Frog isn't killing them entirely for fun. He'll cut the legs off and fry them up. Ew! He's going to eat their legs? Jenny couldn't believe what she was hearing. Yeah, I'll probably eat some, too. Andy, though, he's not much on frog legs, are you, babe? Brianna asked. Y'all can have that. If I eat a fried leg, it better have belonged to a chicken. That's all I'll say. Did he say when he's coming back? Jenny asked. Well, with Frog, you never can tell. If he starts sticking them left and right, it might be a while, but if he can't catch them, then he might not be gone so long. Is he good at catching them? Jenny asked. Best in the valley, Brianna replied. Oh, Jenny said. She thought that was a hell of a way to treat your date. Send her off to get your beer while you go kill frogs around the pond. Jenny made up her mind that Frog would have to take her home as soon as he got back. Here's your beer, Brianna said, and pulled the case from the bed of the pickup. It's still cold. Jenny and I are going to make ourselves a couple of sandwiches. You want a ham and cheese? You know I do. Can you bring it back out here? I'm going to start a fire in the pit. It's 80-something degrees out, Andy. Do you really want to make it any hotter? I like to see the people in the flames, babe. I won't keep it lit all night. Alrighty then, go see your flame people. Come on, Jenny, I'm starving. The girls went into the cabin. Andy lit up the fire pit and waited to hear the first splash. Brianna came out ten minutes later with Andy's sandwich wrapped in a paper towel. Did Frog really go gigging? Brianna asked. Andy truthfully answered. That's where he told me he was going, but you never know with Frog. He added that just to cover his ass for when the shit went down. All right, it's pretty dark out here now. You coming in soon? Yeah, I'll be in in a little bit. I was trying to wait on Frog to get back. I'm surprised he didn't come running when he heard the beer truck, Andy said, already thinking of how fake mad he was going to be with Frog when the prank unfolded. Andy wondered if Frog would let him get a punch in 
just to completely exonerate himself from any involvement in his childish ploy. Just put that fire out before you come in. We don't want to be the ones to burn down the cabins. Roger that, Andy smiled and pursed his lips for a kiss. Brianna gave him a quick peck. Fifteen minutes passed and there was no splash, no sound from the area in which Frog disappeared. Andy was getting a little antsy as he stood from his chair, took another gulp of PBR, and turned toward the cabin. He could see the outline of the girls standing near the AC unit. Andy began walking toward the cabin when the first splash finally came. Ah, so it begins, Andy thought to himself. The girls didn't hear it, or if they did, it wasn't enough ruckus yet to make them come outside. Then... There was a second splash, much louder than the first. He saw Brianna's head turn, but she didn't come outside. I guess third time's a charm, is what Andy thought. The third splash came, and it was much louder than the first two. This time, he saw Brianna move toward the door. Then came the scream. It was loud, shrill, and brief, almost inhuman. It was a scream of severe pain. Brianna came bursting out the door. All right, Andy, tell Frog to cut the shit. Jenny's freaking the hell out in there. She's afraid to come out. Frog, cut the shit! Brianna hollered in the direction of the commotion. There were more splashes. They got louder and closer. Louder and closer. Then, the second scream. It was so loud, Andy was thinking that was one hell of a speaker Frog had brought. Andy and Brianna heard running, and it was coming toward them, very quickly. Frog emerged from the darkness, and his face was white as a sheet. Frog, you son of a... Brianna began and then stopped. Her heart felt like it was going ba-boom out of her chest when she heard the next scream. This was no Bluetooth speaker. This was menacing and so full of pain. Damn, Frog. How are you doing that? Andy asked, still not getting it. Actually impressed with his friend's skill. It's not me, Andy. It's Elena. And I pissed her off. Stop it, Frog. Take me home. I'm done with this shit. Jenny yelled. Her entire body was shaking. The poor girl was scared out of her mind. I think we all need to leave, Andy said as he realized his buddy wasn't joking. Andy kept calm. Let's just go. We'll come clean up our crap in the morning. There was another tremendous splash, and it was closer than any of the others. The rhythm was almost like thunder followed by lightning. A few seconds after the splash, the screech came. It was a sound of unmitigated pain. The four of them froze in place, and their mouths fell open, almost in unison, at what they saw next. The apparition of Elena was floating above the water just past the shoreline. The front of her head was busted wide open, and her eyes were contorted black pools that looked in opposite directions. She fell into the water with a loud, curse splash, and slowly rose again. Her mouth opened wide, and this time, the scream pierced them. 
The eardrums of all four of them were on the verge of exploding in their skulls. Hands went to cover ears on instinct, but it didn't matter. This scream moved through flesh and bone, through space and time. This was the scream of the dead. The dead trapped in her watery grave. It was a macabre dance of the dead in which Elena was forever trapped. Jenny was the first to speak when the screaming stopped. She's not going to let us leave. Brianna looked at Andy, and they felt the same apprehension that Jenny spoke aloud. But Andy simply said, Let's get the hell out of here. Andy and Brianna ran to the truck while Frog and Jenny ran to Frog's Mustang. Andy turned the key and heard the clicking sound associated with a dead battery. Frog did the same. Jenny was shaking in her seat. Brianna was already thinking that they would just book it to 421 on foot. It wasn't that far away, and once they were on that stretch of road, they would be home free. The wind suddenly picked up and the temperature dropped. The four of them got out of the vehicles and moved closer to one another. Brianna wanted to scream, wanted to tell them to run, but something in her gut warned her that would be a big mistake. Jenny's lips were quivering with fear, and Frog didn't look like a prince at all. For the first time in his life, Frog truly felt fear rush up his spine. The calmness that Andy displayed just moments before was replaced with a feeling of despair. They all felt like Brianna, felt as if they should run, but couldn't. Not that anyone or anything was stopping them, but it just felt like a very bad idea. There was another screech, and the four of them turned toward the pond. The apparition was floating above the water just at the shoreline. Her dark hair was flowing behind her, and she wasn't falling this time. Her mouth was contorted as if she were about to release another screech, but this time, she didn't. The spirit of Elena looked directly at Frog with a face of recognition. The spirit began shaking above the water. What the fuck, Frog? Andy whispered. I, I, I don't know, man, Frog whispered back. She, she's pointing at you, Jenny said on the verge of sobbing. No, she's not. She's pointing at us. She don't want us to be here, and I think we should give her what she wants, Frog whispered back. Andy, Jenny, and Brianna slowly stepped away from Frog. Elena's spirit kept pointing to the Valley Prince. It was recognition, and it wasn't coincidence. What the hell, man? What did I ever do to her? I don't know, man, but I wouldn't make any sudden movements if I were you. Summer, 1981. He had seen Elena come in his store through the years. He longed for her, but she was taken. Dustin Hines was her man, and it didn't sit well with him. Not one bit. He heard it through the grapevine that they were going to Langley Pond for a romantic getaway this weekend, and today was Friday. Elena wouldn't give him the time of day, would barely utter a word when she came in to pick out a movie. Sometimes, Dustin would be with her. She would come in with her beautiful long black hair and perfect smile, teasing him. Elena had to know that he was in love with her, but she would come in with Dustin flaunting her love for him and, in a sense, a disdain 
for Frog Spradley. He didn't understand why. Valley Video was going to be his outright in another year. He would be a reputable business owner. Frog was sure that the video rental business would be a necessity for generations to come. But she would come and go. Tease him. Taunt him. Show him what he can't have. Show him who was getting her love. This wasn't going to work for Frog. He would be at that pond tonight. Just like the song said. Bang, bang, he shot me down. Bang, bang, I hit the ground. Bang, bang, that awful sound. Bang, bang, my baby shot me down. And that's exactly what Frog would do. He would go to the pond. He would hear them making love in the tent. He would take his machete and get Dustin to come outside while Elena was sleeping. He'd hack him up and chop off his head. He'd take the John boat out late. He heard them talking about their late night fishing trip. She would come out. She would see the light. She would think that her lover was fishing without her. She'd see the man that she scorned. See what she could have had. He would toss the head of her betrothed. She would see him. All she had to do was keep swimming to the boat, and she would have lived. But she turned and swam away, afraid of the man that was truly meant for her. He'd line her up with his deer rifle. Frog was a dead shot. He wasn't going to miss. He'd let her feel as if she may get away before the shot would zip through the back of her skull. It was pure luck that they pinned it on Billy Jean. He always had a short fuse, and that was all very well and good with Frog. He'd find another love, one that would love him. They'd have a baby boy, and he would keep the name of Frog alive. Frog was the spitting image of his father and his grandfather. He'd grow up as a valley prince. Frog Sr. wouldn't think of Elena again until he took his final breath in 2015 when the song floated through his mind for the first time since that day. Bang, bang, he shot me down. Bang, bang, I hit the ground. Bang, bang, that awful sound. Bang, bang, my baby shot me down. Frog died with his loved ones around him and tears in his eyes. His family didn't know The tears weren't for them, but for Elena, the spirit of Langley Pond. Summer, 2021. The specter was transfixed on Frog, and he was in turn locked onto her lifeless eyes. Her mouth curled in pain, and it was as if she were the one seeing a ghost. Frog couldn't move. It was as if he were stuck knees deep in mud, and the air around him was infused with a coldness that chilled him to his soul. The spirit of Langley Pond seemed to know him, and she didn't seem all that thrilled that he was looking at her. Oh my God! Brianna screamed in Frog's direction. She knows you! Andy turned away from the ghost and saw the angst in Frog's face before he said, That's impossible. There's no way she knows Frog. 
The ghost floated closer to them and seemed to put her feet on the ground. The entire shoreline got much colder, and the others felt it. Everyone was stuck in their spot, afraid to make any sudden movement. The four of them formed somewhat of a straight line, and they all faced the spirit of Elena. But that spirit was only focused on one of them. And she changed. The life came back into her eyes. They turned from black pools to light brown. The distortion in her face also melted away. The ghostly apparition that the four of them witnessed floating above the pond changed into healed flesh and blood. She no longer floated but walked toward Frog. He managed to utter the first words to break the silence. Hey, hey, look, what do you want from us? The young woman smiled at him and held out her hands. Frog wanted to believe this was just a dream, that he had drank five too many PBRs and would wake up any minute, but he knew that he was in the here and now. Take my hand. You were there. You killed my boyfriend. You chopped off his head. And you shot me, Elena said and continued. Take my hand so I can leave this godforsaken place. Frog trembled. His brain was trying to fight the overwhelming compulsion to grab Elena's hand. If he did, he thought it might be the last thing that he ever did. Brianna found her courage and spoke. Elena! The girl turned to face her. He couldn't have killed your boyfriend or you. Please just listen to me. Elena placed her hands at her side and gave Brianna a sense of relief. She was going to listen to her. Good, good, look. The year is 2021. You were killed in 1981 by Billie Jean Morris. It was in all the papers. My mama told me about it. The whole town knew it was Billie Jean. He was shot dead, Elena. They got the man that killed you and your boyfriend. Elena turned her attention away from Frog for just a moment and walked to Brianna. Jenny ran to Andy and stuck her head in the crook of his arm like she was trying to shield herself from seeing a kill in a horror movie. Elena walked toward Brianna. She seemed to admire the beauty of the girl. They were close to the same age. Billy Jean Morris did not kill me. Billy Jean Morris never talked to me. I know who I saw. And it was his face, she said, and pointed back at Frog. Shit, woman, I wasn't even born yet! Please! Frog pleaded. It was him, Elena said, and started to turn away from Brianna. Brianna lunged forward and grabbed Elena around her wrist. She was surprised that she didn't pass through her. Brianna really had a grip on the young woman. Elena spun around in Brianna's backwards hug like a slippery eel and placed her hands on Brianna's head. The memory of that night and her death filled Brianna's mind in what felt like a wave of electricity. Brianna blinked rapidly. Andy pushed Jenny away and started to run toward his girlfriend. No! Brianna screamed. Stop! Andy stopped in his tracks. Elena looked into Brianna's eyes, looking for understanding. You see, it was him. 
You see that now, right? Elena broke Brianna's grip around her waist and turned back to Frog. What the hell, man? I wasn't even on the planet then. It was his daddy, Brianna shouted. This made Elena pause. It is 2021. His daddy's name was Frog and and his name is Frog. He looks just like his daddy. He didn't have anything to do with it. Andy rushed to his girlfriend's side and Jenny was right behind him. The three of them stood together. Frog was still frozen in place. Elena moved closer to Frog. She could see the man that chopped off Dustin's head. She could almost feel the bullet break open the back of her skull all over again. He put his hands out in front of him, hoping this would keep her at arm's length. She touched his hand, and it was colder than anything he'd ever felt in his young life. You have his blood, and a penance has to be paid, Elena said as she grabbed the valley prince by the hand. I will not stay here any longer. I was waiting on him to return, and he never did. But his son will do. You carry the blood of the man that killed me. You should have never been born, Elena said, and pulled Frog closer to her. Brianna and Andy started to run toward them. Jenny was a blubbering mess. To save their friend, but it was too late. Elena had a firm grip on both of Frog's arms and she morphed back into the specter. Frog was lifted straight up into the sky, his legs kicking and his lungs screaming into the night. Brianna and Andy shouted Frog's name as he disappeared into the sky. His screams went silent. Andy and Brianna looked at one another, waiting for another sound, another sign of life from the Valley Prince. What they heard in the far distance of the pond was a splash, a cackle, and then silence. The spirit of Elena Ann Sanders was now free. It was replaced by the son of the man that killed her and Dustin. This would be the penance that set her free. Brianna Andy and Jenny would never be able to explain what they witnessed. They just said Frog went gigging and never came back. What else could they say? That is a fun and creepy one, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Now, before we get to our next story... I just want to say thank you so much for all of the support. And if you want to show your support in a way that really keeps the show going, please do consider the Patreon I mentioned before. You get a bonus episode of Weekly Spooky every month and a whole lot of other bonus content. Just go to weeklyspooky.com and click on Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can get all kinds of cool and creepy bonuses and my undead gratitude. But now I think it's time we head to the fall and play a quick, fun game of Ghost in the Graveyard. Well, after these quick words from our sponsor, that is. Ghost in the Graveyard by Rob Fields It was the final week of October in Strickfield, 
After the previous year's Halloween, the people of Strickfield had voted into village law by a huge majority that trick-or-treating was extended to a full week, instead of just Halloween Eve and Halloween night, as in previous years. The news had reached surrounding villages and even the bigger megalopolises like Shore City and Erie City. People came from everywhere to take part in the legendary event because there was never any age discrimination. And with the annual tradition being a week, more people came than ever. It was on the final night, Halloween night, when Bill Chapman, Brian Chunk, and Richie Horton were out making their rounds. Their pillowcases were stuffed with all the candy and other goodies they'd collected. Man, I can't believe we actually did the whole week, Horton, who was dressed as a Cobra Kai fighter, said. I know we said we'd do a few days, but... I know, Chapman agreed, who was dressed as an army soldier to match his crew cut. Yeah, but look at all the candy we got, Chunker reminded them. He was dressed as a zombie. We got so much stuff, we'll probably be eating it until next Halloween, Chapman sneered. I'd be surprised if even you can eat that much candy, Chunker. Chunker had made good on his promise to lose weight upon surviving their horrible ordeal with Abigail Tomlin in what seemed like only a few short months ago. He was still a little chunky, but his weight loss was quite noticeable between the summer and now. In spite of the weight loss, Chunker found he still had his same monstrous appetite and exercised more in order to keep from putting the weight back on. Chunker will probably end up getting diabetes, Horton stated. When Chapman and Horton both laughed, Chunker just looked at them. Yeah, yeah. Man, these pillow sacks are heavy, Chapman said. Maybe we should head back to the clubhouse again. Good idea, Horton agreed. The boys walked a couple of blocks to get to their clubhouse, which was the old tool shed in Chunker's backyard. His dad built a new garage with some extra space for the tools and told Brian he and his friends could use the old shed for their hangout. They walked in and emptied their pillowcases into the large chest where their haul for the week continued to grow and grow. Looks like if we make one last set of rounds, we can actually fill this bad boy up completely. Chunker stated. Chapman looked at his watch. We still got time. We started at six and trick-or-treating doesn't get done until midnight. And there's no school tomorrow. Horton looked at both of his friends. We're really going back out for more candy? What, you don't want to? Chapman asked. Horton glanced over at the chest. I'm just wondering if Chunker will start on the candy since it's all here at his place. Chapman pointed right at Brian. You don't want to be eating all the candy in one night, buddy. Chunker gave a mischievous grin. You never know. I just might get the munchies in the middle of the night. Chapman tightened his jaw. I mean it, Chunker. Don't you even. Chunker picked up his pillowcase and walked slowly to the door. Fine. When Chunker stopped in the doorway, Horton and Chapman heard what sounded like a very loud trumpet playing. When it stopped, Chunker quickly went outside and slammed the door shut. He pressed himself up against the door and soon felt the others pushing to get out. Chunker started laughing as the others were pounding and pushing hard on the door. 
He could even hear Horton coughing. Open the... Um, <coughs> open the door, you uneducated piece of pork fat! Chapman yelled. Oh my god! Come on, Chunker! Horton protested after gagging. We're gonna die in here! Finally, Chunker got caught off guard when Chapman backed up and ran against the door to both force it open and knock Chunker down. Horton ended up falling on top of both of his friends and sucking for fresh air. Chunker was really laughing it up now. After Chapman eased Horton off him, he got up and pointed down at Chunker. You really are a sick pig, man. I can't believe you tried to kill us like that. Seriously, what did you eat earlier? Horton demanded. Then he gagged and moved farther away from the clubhouse. Yeah, keep the door open, Chapman told Horton. Then he said to Chunker, That's the last time we go to Denoyer's Grill with you before we trick-or-treat. Then he coughed and stepped away from the clubhouse. And lay off that sweet potato pie. After waiting several minutes, Chapman and Horton went back inside to get their pillowcases. From there, they headed back out and onto the streets of Strickfield for more trick-or-treating. They'd received several comments from houses taking part about how they'd been around many times throughout the week. Just the same, they still gave them the treats. After all, Strickfield was the one village where there was no discrimination for trick-or-treating. It was around 11 o'clock when the boys reached Denoyer's Grill. Now remember, Chunker, we're not going in for food, Chapman reminded him. You just said you needed a bathroom break. I know, I know, he replied and opened the door. The boys walked inside to a still-packed dining room. They knew October was the biggest month where Denoyer's Grill got the most business. This year, business really picked up during the first full week of trick-or-treating. Now it was Halloween night, and people were still packing Denoyer's Grill. It was also known that Denoyer paid his people extra for working this time of year. Back again, boys, huh? Denoyer asked pleasantly. Just using the bathroom, Chunker told him. You know where it is. They walked to the men's room and went in. When they were finished, Chapman looked at Horton. Hey, where's Chunker? Horton gave a grim look that said he knew. The two of them finished washing their hands and came outside to find Chunker sitting at the counter and eating a piece of Denoyer's famous sweet potato pie. Horton pointed to the pie. This is why you blew up the clubhouse earlier. This is what, your fifth piece today? Sixth, Chunker corrected him. Come on, guys, you know I don't feel right using the restroom here and not putting into the till. Chapman wanted to yell again, but he sighed and ordered some french fries. Horton ordered a soft drink. After they finished, they left Denoyer's Grill and headed back out. We only got 40 minutes until midnight, Horton said. Do we just head back to the clubhouse or do we ride it out and get more candy? I think we got more than enough to fill the rest of the chest back at the clubhouse, Chunker stated. Still, 40 minutes is 40 minutes. Might as well end on a high note. Even Chapman wasn't going to give Chunker a hard time. They'd started trick-or-treating right at six every night when trick-or-treat week started and went all the way until the end. They knew they couldn't stop now. Just a little while longer, and they'd have officially trick-or-treated for seven nights straight, from start to finish.
The boys managed to make the rounds on four more blocks before it was almost midnight, and the week-long trick-or-treat festivities would be over for the season. We really did it, guys, Horton said with pride. We got more candy than we ever did before, and probably from all of our other years combined. Yeah, we did, didn't we? Chapman agreed. I'm surprised Chunker here went the distance. Yeah, yeah, when have I ever not? Chunker demanded. Well, he did keep up with us on that night last summer, Horton recalled. Chapman pointed at him. Don't you even talk about that, toothpick. We said we'd never talk about Abigail Tomlin ever again. When he saw both Horton and Chunker giving him strange looks, he started to wonder himself. He got confirmation when Chunker pointed at him. You're still dreaming about her too, ain't you? Chapman didn't want to admit it, but the look on his face said enough. Horton adjusted his circular glasses. Face it, you guys. We've never been able to forget about that ghostly woman. It had been just shortly after the boys had finished sixth grade and their time at Strickfield Elementary. Now they were at Strickfield Junior High. As much as they had tried, they just couldn't forget the horror they had experienced on the Crybaby Bridge on Indian Hollow Road. It was just supposed to be an urban legend. Brian and his older brother Kenny made plans to scare Horton and Chapman by making it seem like the legend of the Crybaby Bridge was real. Kenny had even gone so far as to mount a speaker at the bridge to amplify the sounds of a little baby crying. The joke had worked, and Horton and Chapman were both scared. Kenny revealed the speaker before he took it down and went home. But what the three boys were about to find out was that the legend of the crybaby bridge was indeed true. They not only heard a baby crying, Arthur Tomlin, but his mother had appeared in her horrible, ghostly form. The boys were soon running for their very lives when Abigail Tomlin chased them through very heavy winds conjured up by the haunting itself. The boys barely made it as the morning sun came up and sent Abigail Tomlin back to whatever netherworld she may have come from. From that moment on, the boys made it a point to never go anywhere near that bridge on Indian Hollow Road, ever again. Brian really wanted to tell Kenny that the legend of the Crybaby Bridge was real, but he reconsidered when he realized Kenny might actually go out there and check the legend out for himself. After all, their father was the one who told the brothers the story of the Crybaby Bridge. Naturally, Brian wanted to see if the legend was true, Many times over, he'd wished he hadn't. The boys had never been the same after that. They kept having awful nightmares about Abigail Tomlin and the horrible ordeal that had cost her both her life and that of her baby son. Both of them died on that very bridge as a result of her tyrannical husband and the gunfight she had lost to him many, many years ago. The boys felt deep down that Abigail Tomlin wasn't finished with them, not by a long shot. I really didn't want to say it, Horton finally confessed. She's coming back for us. I think she's just waiting for the right time. How's she going to come back for us? Chapman demanded. None of us have ever gone back to Indian Hollow Road, right? Chunker shook his head. 
I haven't. No way. Me neither, Horton confessed. I haven't either, Chapman also confessed. Then he reached out and swung his fist at nothing. Why are we still dreaming about her then? It's like she's still haunting us. I don't want to say anything to mom and dad. I don't know what they'd say. Well, my mom would likely take me to a shrink, Horton piped up. She already thinks I'm crazy enough, especially since I'm hanging around with you two. Both of them sighed. They knew Horton's mother never really liked either of them. Still, she never forbade her son from being friends with them. Chapman and Chunker didn't want to give Horton's mom a reason to finally reconsider that. The three of them had been friends since first grade at Strickfield Elementary and had been through a lot together. While they were different in so many ways, they made their friendship last going into junior high. They knew they didn't want their group to end. Abigail Tomlin's going to keep driving us crazy, Chunker stated. I'm surprised we aren't already nuts. Or maybe we are and we just don't know it yet, Horton interjected. Shut up, Chapman snapped, pushing Horton a little. Then he groaned. Let's go back to the clubhouse and talk about this some more. I don't want to talk about this out here. Good idea, Chunker agreed. The boys turned down a nearby street, which took them past the gated community, where it was all Mirins. It always seemed to be the one area of Strickfield that stood out around October and December. The Mirins never opened their gated community for Halloween for trick-or-treating and they certainly never decorated for Christmas. The boys were quick to notice how deathly still it seemed on the outside. They kept walking until they were clear of the gated community. The boys continued to walk in silence. They would only have about three blocks before they'd reach Chunker's house and their clubhouse. They'd just finished walking the first block and crossed into the second. They were about a quarter mile into the block, when they started to pass Village Cemetery. It was then when they heard some sounds in the distance. You guys hear that? Chunker asked quietly. Sounds like little kids playing? Chapman replied, scratching his bird head. It's after midnight, Horton noted. Then he checked his smartwatch. It's almost 1230. Yeah, but we're in junior high, Chapman stressed. The cops aren't going to say anything to us. Besides, we're not too far from Chunker's house. We might as well keep moving, Chunker suggested. Then they heard the sounds of the little kids laughing in the cemetery again. The boys wanted to turn away and keep going. But deep down... We should head inside and check on those kids, Chapman said. Yeah, but, Horton stammered. When he saw the slight glare on Chapman's face, he sighed. Yeah, you're right. It is too late for those kids to be out here. And in a graveyard, Chunker added. The boys went to the cemetery entrance and found the iron gates were locked. When they heard the children laughing again, They realized they had only one way inside. They tossed their pillowcases of candy over the wall and scaled it to get inside. After dropping to the grass below, they picked up their candy 
and stashed it until they could come back for it and leave. Over there, Chunker said, pointing in the direction of the laughter. The boys walked cautiously through the seemingly endless rows of tombstones. Village Cemetery wasn't nearly as big as Strickfield Cemetery, but it may as well have been with the atmosphere. There was a light fog among the tombstones. Even though it was officially November 1st now, Halloween night itself continued into the late hours in many places. Strickfield was no exception. I can't believe I'm walking around in a graveyard on Halloween night, Horton groaned. Yeah, yeah, Chucker muttered. Stick close. The boys kept walking cautiously through the cemetery until they came upon the scene of the laughter. It looked as though a group of children were in their Halloween costumes. They were laughing as it seemed they were playing a game. Well, it don't look like they're in any danger, Chunker observed. Okay, guess we can go home then. Horton uttered quickly. As Horton turned away, Chapman snatched his wrist. Come on, dude, really? Don't forget, safety in numbers here. When Horton calmed down, Chapman let go of him. The boys watched the children still playing their game. They weren't sure what the game was, but it looked like some form of hide-and-seek. Before the boys were going to talk about what to do next... Ghost in the graveyard! Ghost in the graveyard! The boys shrieked with fright before they turned around to see a little girl dressed as Little Red Riding Hood, pointing at Chunker in his zombie makeup. Ghost in the graveyard! Ghost in the graveyard! She called out again. It wasn't long before a little boy came up next to the girl. His costume looked quite awkward. He appeared to be all wet. His makeup was really good because... He seemed to look like he had some stages of decomposition on his face and arms. That's not the ghost, Annabeth, the boy told her. The ghost is still around in here somewhere. You know who the ghost is. Annabeth turned to the boy, still pointing at Chunker. But he looks like a ghost too, Arthur. Arthur was looking the boys over. It's not him, he told Annabeth again. What are you guys doing out here in the cemetery? Chapman asked. It's after midnight. Aren't you afraid the cops will come here? Arthur laughed. The police never come in here on Halloween. They got way too much to do tonight to be looking in here. But what are you doing in here? Horton asked. Aw, we're playing our favorite game for Halloween night. Ghost in the graveyard, Arthur answered. Want to play? The boys looked among themselves with uncertainty. Oh, come on, Arthur beckoned. It's Halloween night. We got the whole graveyard to ourselves. There ain't going to be any cops looking in here. Trust me on this one. Uh, okay, Horton stammered. We can play a few rounds, right? No school tomorrow and all. Yeah, okay, Chapman agreed. Chunker seemed just as unsure as his friends, but he still gave an affirming nod. Arthur motioned for the boys to follow him and Annabeth. He called for the other children, who were quick to gather around. Okay, people, these guys are playing ghost in the graveyard with us, he told them. The ghost is still out there. Then he explained the rules to the boys as he pointed to the nearby mausoleum. 
That's our home base. We already picked somebody to be the ghost. The ghost is out there in this cemetery somewhere. Now, we'll chant the hours again so the ghost knows we got new players in the game. I'll call out once we finish the chant. Once I do, we all go out looking for the ghost. If anybody spots the ghost, you yell, ghost in the graveyard, and run back to home base, the mausoleum. Now, if the ghost catches you at any point and you're not at home base, then you become the next ghost. Got it? The boys nodded. Then Arthur led the chant by chanting the hours. When they reached midnight, Arthur called out, Midnight! Midnight! We hope we don't see a ghost tonight! Everybody cautiously walked away from the mausoleum and started looking around. The boys pulled out their smartphones and turned on their camera flashes. They found they weren't much help after a little bit. They also noticed they weren't getting any reception. I don't like this, Horton whispered. Something's really wrong here. I can feel it. Yeah, I feel the same way, Chunker agreed. It'll be okay, guys, Chapman said. We'll just play a few rounds and then get these kids to go home. You don't sound so sure of yourself, Horton said. Chapman didn't have to say it, but Horton and Chunker could both see on his face that he was just as concerned as them. Just then. Oh, come on, Chunker, really? Horton groaned as he coughed and waved his hand in front of his face. Chapman was also waving his hand in front of his own face. Man, Chunker, you gotta stop eating so much of Denoyer's sweet potato pie. I'm sorry, guys, Chunker said quietly. It's kind of scary in here. It's no different than during the day, Chapman countered, trying to sound more confident than he felt. Don't you watch scary movies? Horton demanded. You know what you said ain't right. It's always different in a cemetery at night, Chapman groaned. But we're not in a scary movie, nerd. You're right. We're in a very scary graveyard on Halloween night, Horton said quickly. It was nighttime when we saw a ghost over the summer. Yeah, we know ghosts are real, Chapman, Chunker reminded him. Chapman looked like he wanted to yell at both of them, but he kept his thought to himself. Instead, any of you guys see the ghost yet? Horton shook his head. No? Nope. Chunker replied. Could be anywhere. And then Arthur joined up with them. It's okay, guys. There's nothing to worry about. Once we find the ghost, we run back to home base. You sure there's somebody being the ghost out there, right? Chunker asked. We've been looking around and we haven't seen anybody else. Except you, Horton added. Trust me, there is a ghost, Arthur promised. Probably stalking us right now unless the ghost is where the others are. Um, no, Horton disagreed. You said if anybody saw the ghost, they're supposed to chant ghost in the graveyard. Yeah, we haven't heard anybody chant yet, Chunker stressed. Village Cemetery was lit decently, thanks to the streetlights around the paths. The boys didn't want to say it, but they seemed to think that Arthur's makeup looked more and more realistic in terms of the decomposition. And he still looked soaking wet. If he was supposed to be a zombie himself, then whoever did his makeup was 
really good. Let's check over there at that mausoleum, Arthur suggested. At first, Horton hesitated. Then Chapman reminded him, safety in numbers. Okay, Horton groaned. The four boys cautiously walked to the mausoleum Arthur was guiding them to. I'm pretty sure the ghost is hiding in there. That's where she was last time. Yeah, but wouldn't it be better to hide somewhere else? Chapman asked. Arthur didn't say anything, but they continued until they reached the entrance of the mausoleum. Mom, you in there? Arthur called out. Horton looked from Chunker to Chapman. Mom? Now both Chunker and Chapman had the same worried looks as Horton. Suddenly, the door to the mausoleum flew open. To the horror of the three friends, a ghastly glowing woman who wore a blood-stained, damp wedding gown now stood in the doorway. Her flesh was quite decayed and her red eyes glowed as bright as those at a railroad crossing gate. The apparition screamed with delight as she looked upon the three faces. My babies, you've finally come home to your mother, Abigail Tomlin said in her dead and disembodied voice. Then she held her arms out to grab them. Abigail Tomlin! The three friends screamed together. Then they turned and ran for all they were worth. The ghost of Abigail Tomlin screamed herself to pierce the stillness of the night as she began chasing them. We're not at the bridge, Chunker moaned. How is this even happening? Oh man, oh man, oh man, oh man, oh man, Horton squealed. We gotta get out of here, Chapman yelled. There will never be any escape for you, my babies, Abigail Tomlin called out to them. Not this time. And never again. To the surprise of Chapman and Horton, Chunker was actually running fast enough to leave them behind. Horton shrieked, and both he and Chapman ran faster to keep up with him. As the boys came upon the other children, they were yelling for them to run, waving their arms at them frantically. Ghost in the graveyard! For real! Horton screamed. Get out of here! Go home! Chapman added. We're all gonna die if she catches us! For real! Chunker yelled. When the other children saw Abigail Tomlin, they all screamed and scattered. You can run all you want, Arthur called to the three friends. There's no escape. Mom will have you all. You escaped her once, but there's no escape this time. Then Horton made a startling realization. He said his name was Arthur. That's the name of Abigail Tomlin's little baby boy. Like in the legend of Crybaby Bridge. You mean Arthur's a ghost too? Chunker cried in disbelief. Makes sense, Chapman gasped. He calls her mom. They both died together at the bridge years ago. You may run as much as you like, my children, Abigail Tomlin called to them. You are within the boundaries of this burial ground. You will never escape me again, especially not. Before the sun rises. The boys knew the sun wouldn't be up for several hours yet. It was just after one o'clock. We can't keep running much longer, Chunker groaned. Let's get back to the wall and climb over, Chapman yelled. The boys quickly reached the wall. With all the strength and determination that came from being scared for their lives, the boys quickly scaled the wall and dropped to the outside. Abigail Tomlin floated high enough to where they could see her. However, 
she could not float over the wall itself. The boys knew they were safe, but Abigail Tomlin gave them a weird look before she slowly lowered herself back into the cemetery. Let's get out of here, Chunker said after catching his breath. Horton was inclined to agree. However, we can't, guys. We can't just leave those kids in there. Abigail Tomlin will claim them. You know she will. You guys want to go home, then go. But I won't be able to sleep tonight knowing I didn't at least try to save them. True, the boys had escaped Abigail Tomlin once more. However, they knew Horton was right, and he certainly did not want to go back in there himself. I'm with you, Horton, Chapman said. Way to put a guilt trip on us, but... You're right. You know we're not going to make it out again, right? Tomlin's going to get us this time. Yeah, I know, Horton replied. You know I'm really scared, but I'm going back in. Chunker put a hand on Horton's shoulder and laughed a little. We still got to get all our candy we left in there. I'm not letting Abigail Tomlin have all that candy. No way. The others laughed a little at Chunker's humor even though the candy was the farthest thing from their minds. Thanks for being my best friends, guys, Horton said. Chunker pointed sharply at him. No, you don't. We're getting back out of here, and you better believe that, though he didn't sound as confident as he would have liked. I got a plan to get the children out, Horton told them. The other two listened as Horton explained the plan. It's suicide, but... Let's do it, Chapman said. Yeah, Chunker cheered. The boys took a deep breath before they scaled the wall again and dropped back into the cemetery. They ran in the direction of the children screaming. It wasn't long before they saw the ghost of Abigail Tomlin floating near the kids. She had them backed up against the mausoleum that was declared home base. Of course, she had no intention of honoring that part of Ghost in the Graveyard. Hey, Abigail, over here, Chunker called out. Leave them alone, Chapman added. It's us you want, remember? Horton put his thumbs in his ears. Nah, 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 nah. Abigail Tomlin immediately turned to them. It's time to come home, my children. You've been in the mortal realm long enough. As soon as she began floating towards them, Chunker called to the children. Get out of here, now! The boys saw the children move from the home base mausoleum and run to the wall. Arthur Tomlin couldn't stop them as they helped each other get up and over. The boys stood their ground as Abigail Tomlin continued closing the gap between herself and the boys. As they agreed, they would stand their ground until every last child had escaped. It was when the last one had scaled the wall that Abigail Tomlin finally reached them. The boys never screamed as she touched all three of them to bring them into the realm of the dead. Now, Abigail Tomlin had finally claimed the three of them as her own. You're finally home at last, my long-lost children. Now my son Arthur will not be so lonely. The family and friends of the boys and the children of those they saved searched Village Cemetery again and again, 
The only thing they turned up were the three pillowcases full of candy. As far as Brian Chunk, Richie Horton, and Bill Chapman went, their bodies were never found. In fact, they were never found within the entire village of Strickfield. After several weeks of searching and an investigation, the boys were finally given up for lost. In fact, the three boys were never, ever seen again. However, if you're ever foolheartedly brave enough and you happen to drive into Strickfield, go to the bridge on Indian Hollow Road, the Crybaby Bridge, at night. Just remain there for a while. When you feel the winds starting to blow, you might, just might, hear the cries of Brian Chunk, Richie Horton, and Bill Chapman calling out for help from beyond the mortal realm as we know it. And you might even see the ghost of Abigail Tomlin, who continues to haunt this region of Strickfield, especially on Halloween night. Well, my spookies, another show has come and gone. I hope you've enjoyed this compilation as much as I've enjoyed putting it together. And remember, Monday we'll have a brand new episode of Terrifying and True, and Wednesday, another weekly spooky to terrify and maybe titillate you. But before we go, I want to say an extra special thank you to our Patreon podcast boosters, folks who pay $15 or more every month to keep the show going and get to hear their names on the program, and they are Bobbletopia.com, Megan Hua, Julia Kirsch, Christopher Sullivan, Brent McCullough, Gino Lyons, Steve King, Karen Wiemet, Jack Kerr, and Craig Cohen. Thank you all so much for your support, and I look forward to bringing you so much more spooky on the weekly and beyond in the near future. But now... I've got to get out of here. So, for myself, for my producer Dan Wilder, my composer Ray Mattis, and of course, my executive producer Rob Fields, I will talk at you very, very soon.